With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. We have a very unusual program tonight. Um, our first guests are calling us from Australia, uh, Kieran Flanagan and Dan Gregory. Uh, um, are here to assess, assist small and mid-sized businesses and large corporations to know what business they're really in. They're from the Impossible Institute, which is um, we have to ask them about that that in a few minutes because that's what really got me interested. But first, uh, Kieran and Dan, tell us a little bit about yourselves personally before we get into anything else. Well, thanks for having us, Don. Uh, Dan and I are business partners. (laughs) We're not life partners. People often ask us. And uh, we've been working together for over 20 years. And um, I personally... Uh, We had an advertising background for a lot of that time. We had our own advertising agency uh, for 15 years or so, which we uh, then sold and uh, went on to found the Impossible Institute, uh, where we could make a big difference to a lot of small businesses, not just huge corporates uh, that we tended to work more with in our advertising days. I'm a mum. I have a seven-year-old. Uh, so I know a bit about having uh, little people to raise as well. Um, whereas and then, I, I have no children. I have no children, but I, I spend most of my time um, on planes. So, so Kieran and I are sort of uh, we, we we sort of live about thirty thousand feet above the, the Pacific Ocean, sort of travelling between the US and Australia and Asia. Um, uh, although I, uh, even though I don't have kids, I'm uh, godfather to Kieran's little girl, so that's uh, that's my window to that world. Well, for, first and foremost, tell us what the Impossible Institute's all about, because that certainly got you on this program. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're essentially a, a, a think tank. In in other words, we we work with entrepreneurs helping them build businesses that punch above their weight. Um, and we also go inside large corporations and help them develop 
uh, you know, hubs of entrepreneurship within the larger organisations. So that's essentially the, the nuts and bolts of what we do. But uh, the reason we call ourselves the Impossible Institute is we like to... Um, we have a methodology that likes to start with an impossible question. So, for instance, we were working with a big financial company recently and they said to us, um, one of the issues we face is we've got so many customers and so many people calling in that, that um, we, we almost have to put people on hold. There's almost no chance of you calling up and not, not experiencing being on hold. And so the impossible question we started with for them was, what would it take for people to want to be put on hold? And um, what we're actually doing with them is we're talking to some, uh, some record labels about getting some of their artists to record unplugged versions of their, their songs. And the only way you can hear them is in it's on hold music. So that's, that's sort of the way we, we approach problem solving is, is what's the impossible question that no one's asking? What, what's, what's the thing that we're missing because we're so used to the way that things are always done that we, we can't see how they might be done? Well, that's a great example. Can you give us another one? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, well, we I can. Uh, can you, you know, we were working. You're going to uh, have to talk louder yeah. because you're fading in and out. Oh, really? Is that better? Uh, yes, and more if you could get some more. More, more, more. Okay. Help our uh, oh, it'll be as loud as we can. Uh, it must be all that distance across the, the ocean. <laughs> uh, we were working uh, with a group of uh, entrepreneurs, and we were helping them with business ideas. And we, you know, we said to the room, if you're opening a restaurant, because a couple of them were, what are the things you absolutely need to have in a restaurant? And uh, of course, they all said food and good service. And we said, okay, well, what if we said? Can you imagine a restaurant where you didn't actually sell food? And they all said, that's ridiculous. And we went, well, it's an impossible question. What would that restaurant look like? And what we said to them was, well, we know a restaurant, and it's in the middle of a fresh food market, and they have top chefs. They have five of them. And people buy their own food from around the market and bring it to the chefs, and they cook the food. And what's one of the biggest costs in restaurants, apart from obviously staff and things, is food wastage. So they eliminate that problem completely and create a really novel idea that attracts people to them. So again, it's an impossible question that leads to a different answer. That, this is fascinating. I, I, I almost wants me to go to, to Sydney and try that restaurant. That's what a great idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's in the middle of a, of a food market, and you bring the food to them. Exactly. So you get to bring the ingredients you love, and uh, the chefs will make something magical with it for you. Wow. Uh, I know occasionally if you go to a resort and you catch a fish, if you go fishing, they'll cook the fish for you, and it always tastes better than anything else if you caught it. But that, that's really great. Um, so tell us more. I, I mean, uh, this is fascinating, so keep going. Uh, I guess the simplest way to ask you for another one, and then also well, to again, talk about your methodology. What it's, what it's really about is identifying ways that, that entrepreneurs and businesses can stand out from everyone else. You know, how can we do things that are different? And 
one of the things that we found is if, ever, if, you, if you're constantly asking the same questions, then you're typically going to end up generating the same kind of answers. And, and that's where we get into a space where a lot of new businesses come out in the marketplace and they're quite generic in their offering. And as a result, they find it difficult to compete. They find it difficult to attract new customers. They find it difficult to fill their funnel. And so what we look to do is, is to find not just you know, um, the unique selling proposition, but how can we do something that's, that's a unique business model in and of itself? And typically what we start, what we try to do is, you know, a lot of, you know, with, with due respect to Simon Sinek and, and his great book, Start With Why, typically what we like to do is to start with who. In other words, we like to get the people that we work with to dig into who their customers really are. Who is it in the marketplace that they love better than anyone else? So an example of that, we were working with a photography school and most photography schools are pretty generic in their offering. You know, they'll teach you any kind of photography you want to learn. They'll teach you landscape photography. They'll teach you um, portraiture. They'll teach you boudoir photography. Whatever, whatever your particular bent is, they'll teach you that. And so as a result, they, they, they typically don't stand in the marketplace. One photography school pretty much looks like another. So we sat down with the, the photographer who runs this school and we said, listen, what kind of photography do you like? What do you like taking photographs of? And the owner of the school, she said, well, I love taking photos of children, particularly young children. So we changed the model of her business. So all she does now is she teaches new and expecting parents how to take unbelievably high quality photos of, of the newborns. And as you can imagine, that's, that's the time of life when people are going crazy with the camera. You know, they're desperate to have great photos of their kids. And it's, it's one of those gifts that grandparents that can give or godparents can give or, 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 or siblings can give to, to those who are expecting children. And as a result, she just owns that part of the marketplace. You know, her, her photography school is now booked out for, for months in advance because people are so engaged with this idea of taking great photos of their kids. But what it's really about is understanding who her customer really is, what they truly value, and aligning her business goals or, or, or outcomes with those customer values. Well, yeah, you, you know, so often... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go. No, no, yeah, I was going to say, uh, so often in business, and, and we work with a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs, and so often we find that they don't really understand what it is they're truly selling. That they, they know the business they're in, in the sense of they, they know that they're, you know, a lawyer or, you know, they're helping people with their health, but they don't really deeply get the emotional exchange taking place. And we do a lot of work in that space. And we get really specific about, well, who are you talking to and what are they getting out of it? And we were working with a... Uh, a lady who had a food services business for children with allergies. So it was anti-allergic food, like gluten-free and those sort of things. And we asked her to describe her customer and she just said, well, they're parents. And we said, well, can we get specific? And we dug into her business and it turned out that she sold more treat food than any other kind of food. And, you know, we did a little bit of work around why. And what we realized and where she had a revelation was she wasn't selling allergic food. She was selling the chance for parents with kids with allergies to give them a really normal childhood. And their deep fear was, my kid is, is going to miss out. 
my child is not going to have that experience. They're going to be the kid at the birthday party who can't eat anything. And they didn't want that for their kids. And it transformed her business because not only did she sell products, her, all of a sudden she had a content strategy online where it was, you know, have you just found out your kids have allergies? We can help. You don't need to be afraid. There's, you know, they're not going to be the weird kid that gets left out. They're going to have a really normal, happy life. So we do a lot of work in that space. And again, a lot of what we do is about, because p- people typically know their product really well or they know the job they do really well or they know their role or they know the service they provide really well, uh, particularly in small business. But, but again, what, what typically don't have a, a concept around is, well, what's the value exchange that they're really engaged in with their customers? Because typically when you're an entrepreneur, you have to wear all the hats. You have to be the head of HR. You have to be the head of accounts receivable. You have to be the head of marketing and sales. You're wearing a lot of different hats you know, in startup phase and you know, as you're building. And what, what we do is we sort of allow them to elevate up out of the, the product that they're producing and actually see their business as a whole and actually really develop their business acumen and have an understanding of what's driving their customers and how they can better serve them. So that's, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. And it's, it's just as relevant to, to the entrepreneurial side of business as it is to the big corporates. Well, um, well you're in Australia. Do you come to the United States? And do you have a book? Well, why are you on this program outside of educating me, me and the, the audience? We we do. We actually uh, we spend a lot of time in the U.S. In fact, uh, I used to I used to live in the U.S. for for quite a long time. Um, and uh, yes, we were over there um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, signing copies of our book. We have a book which is all about human behaviour. What what drives people's behavior, what drives our own behavior, what drives our customers' behavior, and it's called Selfish, Scared, and Stupid. And it's about the fact that there's a big difference between what we say we do or what we say we want to do and what we actually do. And what we're about uh, in, in the book is about understanding that the things that drive us uh, are actually not the things that we think are driving us. And in fact, you know, being selfish, scared, and stupid, you know, they're typically seen as negatives, but what we've realized is is that those three characteristics are actually what helped us survive as a species. You know, being selfish helped us look out for number one. Being scared, you know, taught us to mitigate risk. And and being stupid meant that we had a bias towards the simplest, easiest solution to the problems that we faced. And what we've realized is is this survival mentality still drives a lot of our decision-making at an unconscious level. A lot of this is happening at an automatic level that that we're not fully cognizant of. And so what we do is we we tend to, when we work with businesses, move them away from talking about ideals or or perfect uh, laboratory conditions in terms of behavior and what's actually driving their customers, what's really driving their staff and how do we build behavioral strategies that support that behavior and in fact have it work towards the, the outcomes that we're looking to achieve. And the name of the book again? It. Selfish, scared, and stupid. Uh, is it available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And um, actually, uh, our, our sales in the U.S. have, going, have been going particularly well. Although one of the uh, one of the common fee- uh, pieces of feedback we get is that people can often see themselves as being selfish, 
Uh, people will even admit to occasionally being scared. The biggest challenge is when people have to admit that they're occasionally stupid. Um, <laughs> so, uh, again, this is not a book that's, that's about beating people up. It's about understanding, well, hang on, what's really going on for us? And typically, you know, the, the analogy Kieran and I like to use, and Kieran can talk to this, is we tend to talk about swimming with, with the current of human nature. Yeah, you know, uh, growing up near the beach, as I'm sure a reasonable amount of your listeners might know or they've been to the beach, is you learn something really important about swimming in the ocean. You learn that if you get caught up in a riptide, to never swim against the current, to always try and swim with it. Because if you try and swim against it, you get exhausted, you go nowhere, and without rescue, you just might drown. And we think it's exactly the same when it comes to working with human nature. If we try and fight who we are, if we try and fight ourselves, we, we kind of get exhausted. We don't achieve anything and we often give up. So, you know, we're always, how do we design for human nature? And for us, design beats discipline. And, you know, so often as small business people and just any people, any person, we rely on motivation and discipline. And when we don't have it forever, we go, there's something wrong with me. And, you know, Dan uh, lives an hour away from work, from the office. And uh, this year, one of his goals was to spend more time at home. And I thought that was a pretty good goal as well, get him out of the office and away from me for a while. And uh, anyway, so he started to diligently set a goal and he put, you know, a sign on the wall that said, get home more and all those positive motivational things. And after a couple of months, he said to me, I just don't feel like I'm home anymore. And we sat down and we did the math, right? And Dan lives an hour away from the office, so that's an hour in and an hour home. That's two hours a day. Multiply that by five days a week. That's 10 hours a week. Multiply that by 52 weeks a year. Take out a couple of holidays, and there's about two months of the year that Dan spends in his car commuting. Now, he doesn't have a motivation problem. He doesn't have a discipline problem. He has a design problem. If all he did was move his office or our office half an hour closer to home or home half an hour closer to work, he'd instantly gain an extra month of home time. But we don't think that way. We, we blame ourselves. We blame, oh, I'm not motivated enough. I'm not inspired enough. If I just motivate and inspire my customers more, they'll change their behavior. And we look to do the exact opposite. We go, well, who they are is who they're always going to be. And how do we design with who they already are in mind? And it's one of the biggest issues that small to medium businesses, you know, come up against is they're typically really smart people, really motivated and really disciplined. But as a result, they tend to take all of the weight on themselves in terms of performance and they underutilize systems and processes and, and environmental design. You know, how do you, how do you design your business in such a way that you get your staff to deliver the way you need them to or, or that makes it easier for customers to engage with you? So one of the things we're looking to do is how do we use behavior design as a way of supporting discipline and, and motivation? Because no one's motivated every minute of every day and certainly no one's disciplined in every part of their lives but we still need people to deliver at a particular level. So how do we design our workspaces or how do we design our processes such that it supports people in delivering the results that we need? Fascinating, fascinating. The name of your book again? 
The book is Selfish, Scared and Stupid. And yeah, we're also looking web- to... Uh, pardon? And your website? We're also looking to uh, theimpossibleinstitute.com. Okay. Um, are you coming back to the States anytime soon? We are. We're due back in um, early March, so just after the Christmas sort of break. Well, you're and uh, a point. we're looking to. Sorry, Don. We're looking to, to run a, a small business course over there. So we run it over in Australia, but we're looking to uh, start it up in the United States as well. Well, I'll tell you. Um, why don't we talk afterwards, and we'll uh, we'll certainly uh, publicize your uh, uh, event on our websites. Fantastic! Terrific. Thank you. No, no problem, because you're just fascinating. I want to talk longer, but we have a uh, our next guest is uh, ready and waiting. I want to th- thank you, uh, Karen and Dan, for a very interesting time, and, and please. Uh, uh, Follow up soon, and we'll we'll coordinate some things. Okay. We Thanks shall for do. having Thank us. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for having us. No, thank you. It was just fascinating. Thank and you. Our next guest is Melissa Gonzalez. She's the founder. Of a a lioness has group. left the group call. Hello. Hello. Yes. Well, Melissa, are you on? I am. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, uh, you're a fascinating woman, um, and uh, we're really happy to have you on the show. Um, we've had um, uh, our first two guests today. Uh, fascinating, and when I saw the material on you, I said we you had to join us on the on the show. But Melissa, we always ask our guests the first question: tell us a little bit about yourself personally. Um, sure. Um, my name is Melissa. I am I'm a New Jersey resident. I have a, a business called the Lioness Group. Uh, I started in 2009 after leaving Wall Street. Um, and let's, uh, I have a, a cute Jack Russell named Mila, and she is our office manager. Oh, but the, what does the Lioness Group do? Uh, the Lioness Group, we are pop-up architects, so we are essentially retail strategists. We work with brands who want to activate short-term retail spaces, primarily in New York City, but we've worked with brands to pop up in New York, San Francisco, the Hamptons, Austin, Texas, um, and San Francisco. So, in effect, the, the, these pop-up stores that we see, like uh, uh, in the news yesterday, it was the fact that um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, was robbed of some very. I expensive. know. That was major and, news and for sure. And that's the type of, of uh, pop-up shop you do. Yes. She isn't one of our clients, but yes, that's exactly the kind of pop-up shops that we do. We actually have six right now for the month of December. Um, We have one with a great brand called Food 52. Uh, They curate all things surrounding cooking in your life. Um, We have one with Mira. It's a fitness tracker. 
Um, it's a bracelet that's a fitness tracker. When we have um, a brand in from Italy called Bottega, and they um, they are um, curate artisanal Italian foods. Um, and then we have a brand Male um, from France. Uh, they're basically like sommeliers of mustard. Um, and then we have a great emerging designer called Nora Gardner who's selling her dresses. Where do you sell these pop? Where do you put these pop-up stores? Um, they're all in different spaces. So Food Fifty Two is in Union Square. Um, then we have three revolving storefronts in Midtown at the Roger Smith Hotel, and we're actually opening a store um, for Packer Shoes and Puma on Friday, and that will be at the Refinery Hotel. Well, what what makes you decide who you will pop up the store for? And what are the criteria? Uh, I know I've gotten more uh, emails on this uh, on your uh, appearance today, and they all can say the same thing. What's the criteria, and why should I do it? So the floor is yours. Okay, sure. So I mean, the criteria is really that you have a goal. Um, you know, people call our offices all the time wanting to do a pop-up shop, and uh, my first question is why. Um, you know, you can't do a pop-up because there's cachet and it's the popular thing to do. You really have to be clear of what you want to get out of it. Um, you also want to have somewhat of a budget. I mean, you know, there's areas where you really can't skimp if you want to have a successful pop-up store. So. Ideally, you know, you want to be able to pay for your location, and sometimes you can get a great deal on that, um, but it's more important to be in the right location than the free location because everything uh, opportunity cost is still money in some way. So being where you need to be is really important. Um, and also, you know, having the proper time to plan out the story that you're going to tell in the space. You don't want to come in and just throw items on a shelf. People, customers walk into a pop-up store with a very different expectation than a regular store. They walk in to be, uh, to discover, to be surprised, to be delighted. And so you want to make sure you're having enough time to really plan that out in the space, even if it's do DIY tactics. Um, and then time for marketing, um, especially now for the holidays. There's hundreds of pop-ups happening in New York City. So even though the holidays might seem the best time to do it, if you don't have a marketing strategy, you can get lost in the noise. So you really want to make sure that you have a proper marketing strategy planned. Well, what would what would be a typical marketing strategy? You mentioned it, but what do you mean by that? Um, so, you know, you want to make sure that um, there's different – it depends on the brand of how, what they can do, but there's different things. One, you know, there's always the word of mouth to friends and family starting early. You want to make sure that, you know, if you have a, a newsletter, that you're starting to get the word out, maybe a month in advance. Save the date. We're coming. Mark your calendar. Tell your friends. Announce it on social media channels. Um, schedule a calendar of events in the shop. If you're, you know, doing a one-day pop-up, that's one thing, but if you're doing it for a couple of weeks, you want to plan in-store events with some key partners so that they can help you co-market the space and that there's buzz to the space. So, you know, if you're if you're a dress designer, you might want to uh, plan um, a night with a jewelry designer, a night with um, some sort of alumni group, a night with a women's group, uh, different ways that you can open your space to other partners but to drive traffic. And sometimes, you know, uh, guerrilla marketing isn't dead, so you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're making postcards and they have a call to action and they have a an incentive for people to come visit the shop and are you nearby other local businesses that could benefit from you giving them postcards like maybe a nail salon or a concierge desk um, at a nearby hotel 
So really utilizing, and then you want to make sure you're, you know, doing some sort of media outreach. And even for short short lead media, you want to give yourself at least like a solid month. You want to make sure you have the proper images prepared um, so that, you know, if the media is interested in your story, you can follow up very quickly with the proper imagery and information that they're going to need to keep their lives easy. Well, I'm going to go sideways for a moment. Um, again, an email came across. What made you go into this? Into the, you've been at it a long time. But what made you decide to go into the pop-up in, industry? After- uh, they, I, it just kind of happens. Like I um, left Wall Street because I wanted to pursue a more creative path. Um, while I was working on Wall Street, I was also hosting a TV show as a VJ and um I ended up producing a web series, and the family, uh, the son of the family that I partnered with to to film my pilot, um, this family owned the Regiment Hotel, and the, the, they had vacant storefronts, and this was in 2009, and he said, we're thinking of doing something creative here, do you want to partner? And um, it was serendipitous, I suppose, I was at a time in my life where I could be really flexible and experiment and I said sure you're giving me free real estate in Midtown I'll try it out um, and that we did for about four months brands paid me in clothes because we really didn't know it was going to happen um, and by that January we we're renovating spaces and making a business out of it so kind of happened by accident but it fulfilled my need to still be a business person but with a creative side well let me ask you you mentioned earlier uh, you, you you're doing one with an Italian group, a food group, or actually mm-hmm. two food groups. Where where are you doing them, and what what's your theme behind them? Uh, sure. So uh, Bottega is doing this in Midtown Manhattan, um, and she's an online food brand. She lives in Italy. She flew in for this. Um, and the reason why we ended up doing this is we had a story. We We, we did their social media strategy last year and media and blogger outreach, and we, we got a story into Market Watch for their panettone bread, and it, it was super successful and sold out. Um, so we knew then, we said, next holiday season, you need to come in from Italy and bring this to people in person. So the pop-up shop is, a, is an opportunity to step into, um, step into the fine Italian food experience. And you walk in and you can taste. Um, it's all artisanal foods. It's gluten-free pasta. It's um, artisan panettone bread. It's hazelnut spreads. But it's all from Italy. So the way they make foods in Italy is a little bit different here in the U.S. and it's um, and, and and it's got less preservatives and and everybody gets to taste it. So there's a there's a tasting experience. You meet the founder. She can talk to you about you know why she curated every single product, um, and then you have the opportunity to buy it for the holidays and take something home that's unique. Um, for Food Fifty Two, um, it's their holiday market. So Food 52 was founded by two women from the New York Times. Amanda Hesser um, was uh, the food critic um, of, of the New York Times for about 20 years. 
um, and Meryl Stubbs also wrote for the New York Times, and the two of them uh, co-wrote a, a, a cookbook that became a New York Times bestseller, and then they launched this site together. So a little bit of it is they have this amazing cult following on social media. They have about a million followers, and so now everybody can come shop the holiday store in person. Um, but when you walk in, it just it's a very well-curated holiday market, and it feels really festive, and we created a little uh, projected movie area with, like, our favorite holiday films and parents that are shopping can let their kids sit there and eat popcorn and watch the movie. When you first walk in, there's a cozy living room scene with the Christmas tree and a menorah. Um, and you're just kind of taken through the experience of how all things cooking can fit into your life. Mm. Now, uh, our audience, uh, 59% of whom are uh, owners and or uh, presidents, uh, when they come to you, what do you typically ask them uh, if they're thinking of, of a pop-up store? What, what, what questions do I ask them when they're thinking of it? Yes. Um, so the first four questions I ask, uh, I ask, what is your goal? Um, and that could range. Everybody's goal is to make money, obviously. But for this particular activation... Is it you're launching a new product? Are you launching a new brand? Are you testing a new location? Are you testing a new partnership? Are you educating something about your product that is not easy to educate online? Um, so we really go through the goals of the pop-up. Then I ask them about their customer demographic, and that helps us determine what's the best area to really do this pop-up because the pop-up is an opportunity to go where they are, right? So where does he or she work? Um, what, what other stores are they shopping at? Um, what do they care about? So we ask those questions. Um, then we uh, go through their budget. Budget is very important. Um, and then we also understand what the inventory is going to look like. So is it going to be a fully stocked store? Is it more of a showroom presentation with uh, shoppable uh, iPads? You know. Um, so those are kind of the first four questions because that helps us determine where uh, they should pop up, how large, and what kind of space they need. Um, and then from those steps, then we go on to creating, you know, the hook and the story that's going to be told into the space. What is an average budget for a pop-up store? Run? It really ranges. It really, really ranges. Um, we have um, we have partnership spaces in New York City, so those tend. To Partnership turnkey spaces tend to be the most affordable options. Um, so, you know, we partner with hotels, and for hotels, it's very, very smart of them to do because. And as a revolving storefront in their in their space, they're getting new press and new foot traffic all the time. So um, those tend to be most affordable. The least expensive space we have rents for six thousand for the month. Um, and in these turnkey spaces, that includes Wi-Fi, that includes electric, that includes security system. They have a liquor license. Like there's a lot of things that you don't have to worry about. Um, so for a space like that. If you have a total budget of like $20,000, you can be in good shape because aside from the rent, you still need a design budget, you still need a staffing budget if you're not going to be in the store every day. And even if it's guerrilla marketing, you need some sort of marketing budget. Um, but we've worked from budgets like that all the way up to, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. If you're going into a, you know, uh, a raw space where you're negotiating with a landlord or a broker, rent alone in New York City for a month can easily become, you know, Thirty plus thousand dollars, and then you're having to set up your own Wi-Fi, you know, pay for electric, set up an alarm system, like all the infrastructure costs build up on top of that. Hmm. It's very interesting. Um, 
uh, I always ask the question and sometimes don't get an answer, but you, uh, uh, like everything else, there must be one or two failures. Why do, why do, uh, what has been your experience of pop-ups that fail? Um, you know, I think that failure is an opportunity to learn, um, and we definitely have pop-ups that are extremely successful, and we have pop-ups that aren't successful in that moment. Um, but brands that are really smart about it take it as an opportunity to learn. Um, you know, there are brands that I see don't learn from their failures, and they, they just kind of put bad money after bad money. If a space isn't working and somebody allows you to be there longer um, and they and negotiate down the rent or you get it for free, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I do see those situations happen, and it really hurts a business. Um, but I see other uh, um, opportunities for brands that are in a pop-up and it doesn't go the way they planned, but they learn a ton from it. So I have an example called Nora Gardner. She's a brand. We did her first pop-up, uh, and I talk about her in my book. I, her first pop-up um, was we're in 2015, so it was 2013 of December, and she was designing for a woman right out of college, and she had short hemlines, and she had uh, uh, $300 price point, which, you know, for right out of college wasn't exactly accessible. But in her pop-up, older women and different type of women were were intrigued by her brand and they were interested, but it wasn't the right fit for them. So something was off. She went back to the drawing board and did a pop-up with us nine months later. She redesigned the fit of her dress. She redesigned the hemline of the dress. And she modified her marketing tactics to appeal to an older woman. And in that next pop-up, she went from not making any money the first time to, in her one-month pop-up, made her rent in the first week. Um, and this was, and she now, um, and she is now doing her. Uh, so this is two years. She now does pop-ups with us every spring and every fall. Um, and she continues to grow her list, and she's really found her niche. But she used the first quote-unquote failure as a way to learn and make her brand better. What's the name of your book? Uh, it's called The Pop-Up Paradigm. And tell us a little bit about it. Uh, sure. So um, it's available on Amazon and dot com, and it's um, it's 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 really meant to be a book to answer a lot of these questions. So the first uh, six or seven chapters uh, I haven't memorized are why do a pop up. So one chapter speaks about you know brand awareness. The next chapter speaks about education. So really goes through the different reasons why you could do a pop up, and then each chapter is filled with examples or case studies of brands that either we've worked with or brands that we think have done a great job of doing a pop-up to meet those goals. Then we go through, um, you know, what you should think about if you're going to do a pop-up, kind of a quick uh, guide of, you know, a checklist of if it's the right time and if it's not. Um, and we talk a little bit about innovative strategies like technologies that you can work into your pop-up store. And it concludes with, you know, sort of a quick look at the future of retail and what we think lies ahead. When you say we, is your book or we? I guess my you? my team, <laughs> but it's really me. But yes, yeah, what my team, what my team thinks. Well, it's nice that you keep saying we rather than <laughs> I. Uh, uh, Melissa, I'm going to get out and hopefully get a copy of the book. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I certainly learned a lot, and uh, if people want to your website. Sure, yeah, they can go to lionesque 
esqegroup.com, so lion, uh, like the animal, and then esqegroup.com. And we have uh, an active blog, and we, you know, talk about past pop-ups, and you can kind of see, you know, what other people are doing out there. Well, I'm really glad you you came on uh, on board tonight, and I hope our audience learns uh, as much as I did about the the world of pop-up. I hadn't realized just how interesting it can be. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And um, you know. Uh, if you have, if you, we'll get, I'll get your address, and we'll make sure you get a book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, thank have, you. Have a great night. Uh, have a great holiday. You too. Our next guest is Chris Dyer. He's founder and CEO of People G Two, and he offers some uh, three points, but hopefully more, about the hiring process for SMBs. Chris. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate your your patience with us. Um, Chris, we always ask our guests to say a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, on a personal level, I'm a husband and a father. of. I've got three teenagers now. Um my kids, we adopted all three of them from Russia. They were older kids when we got them. I also uh, spent a lot of my nights in uh, CD bars and uh, uh, different music venues because I'm in a band uh, called Fifth Law. So I spent a little bit of time writing songs and uh, playing music uh, when I have time when I'm not uh, doing my 9-to-5 job. Well, what exactly is People G2? So People G2 is an employment screening and background check company. Um, essentially, we provide uh, tools for companies and individuals that are in any sort of a people-related transaction. So if you're worried about the other person that you might be going into some sort of a transaction with, we have a solution to help you uh, make sure that it, you, you've done your due diligence, you've uh, tried to eliminate as much risk as you can. Most of that business is employment screening, but other examples would be tenant screening, client screening, uh, if you're going to buy a business, sell a business, uh, things like that. We're, we're there to help people. Do, do you ever deal with romantic uh, decisions? You know, it comes up very infrequently. Uh, we do occasionally get called by one spouse asking us to go and follow or check up another spouse. and. Usually my advice is if you're calling me and you think they're cheating, they probably are. So save yourself some money and just go spend it on the attorney instead. Uh, you know, in, in, in California where I'm located, it's a no-fault state, so it doesn't matter if they're cheating or not. It's not going to help them or not, so they need to decide if they want to stay married. So, But, yeah, uh, other than that, it's mostly business to business. Well, you know, uh, we're here to talk about three three points you want to make about the, the hiring process. So, uh, you've you've also given us an article which uh, is on our website, Two um, SB Digest and Small Business Digest Mag. Uh, so, Chris, what are the the the, uh, the the three points you wanted to make? Well, I, you know. 
there's always a lot of good information out there. Uh, I'm just trying to maybe get something a little more topical. The three kind of current points that uh, most companies might want to think about when they're hiring. Yeah, the first is to really make sure that they understand what their local laws are. I mean, most people don't understand what the federal, the state laws are, but there's now becoming more and more these very specific local laws. Um, so if you live somewhere like New York or San Francisco, you might be a, you know, you have to be kind of under a rock not to have heard about some of these things. But it's a good idea just to double check that there aren't local laws uh, that have recently passed. Um, beyond that, you know, any any good background check company or your employment attorney, people like that can kind of steer you in the right direction for what are your obligations on a federal level and a state level. And so, those are all really important on what can you what can you do and not do, what can you ask and not ask, and um, you know, what point is it appropriate to do a background check? So, um, you know, the, the, the second area is to really make sure that you are handling that process and not just background, so the whole onboarding process, the whole I'm looking at this applicant, considering this applicant, and then possibly denying them or offering them a job. You need to handle that process with care. A lot of small, medium businesses don't know that they have an obligation to keep those documents confidential, to keep them locked in the file cabinet or stored properly, um, that only certain people in the company can have access to that. Um, you know, you applicant socials and data bursts and things like that. We still still uh, see horror stories about people just dumping files out in the trash, and that's how a lot of identity theft occurs is trash stickers go in there and just grab applications and grab things with other people's identity on there and that gets traced back to your company, you can bet you're going to pay for it through the nose uh, with the lawsuit. Uh, you know, and then the third area is just to make sure you handle that final process as, as good as you can, uh, about being open and honest and transparent about why you want to move forward with that applicant or not move forward with them because you do have obligations under the law to provide them a copy of the report to let them know what problems you found um, or else you can... You can get nailed. We could be one of those, uh, you know, we put 26% uh, last year. I think this year the number is going to be drastically higher. But 2014, it was 26% higher just on lawsuits around that whole hiring process uh, because there's more laws and uh, companies are not keeping up with it. Oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, for instance, in New York and other places, I've read that the uh, – they're trying to bring put laws into effect that you can't uh, check if a person has a criminal record until after you've made a job offer, which seems bass backward for me. Well, you know, it, it, here's the problem: when a hiring manager gets 500 resumes or 500 applications on their desk. They've got to quickly try to figure out how do I get this down to a manageable number. They're not going to go through all 500. And unfortunately, what people are doing is saying, oh, you have a criminal record, and they have this little box that's marked that says, have you ever been convicted? And they take all those and they throw them in the bin. And so now we have an entire population of people who aren't ever being considered, never get a call for a, uh, to go in there and have a uh, an interview, and are not getting hired. And so we then are forcing them to a life of public assistance or a life of, of continued crime or problems. 
there are clearly people we do not want to hire that, don't, you know, in my personal opinion, probably don't deserve a second chance. But a vast majority of those people who are checking those boxes can be great employees, do deserve that second chance. And a, a, a disproportionate number of them, these are drug-related offenses. These are, they had a joint in their pocket. Um, they they had, you know, some sort of minor offense that, you know, if we are going to completely knock them out of that potential to have a job, we're not giving them very many options in society. So places like New York, uh, New Jersey is another. There's a, some 70 different counties throughout the country that have done this ban the box, which is, hey, you can still look at it. You can still consider whether or not they have a, a criminal record. We just want you to wait a little longer. We just we want you to look at their resume. We want you to have that. If you decide that the resume is good enough to have an interview, then great, have that interview, and and talk about maybe some of the problems at the end of the process. Because usually, if you have the opportunity to talk about that story about what has happened, you you might look at that applicant and say, okay, yeah, you had a joint in your pocket. You got a misdemeanor for minor possession. Uh, you know that was six years ago. You've had employment sense, you've never had a criminal record sense, you have all the education and everything I want, you know, maybe you could take a chance on that person. So I think that's whether you anyone agrees with that or not, that's probably my best explanation of the reasoning behind some of these movements. Well, uh, I'm a, I sit on the board of a medical marijuana uh, dispensary here in New Jersey, and I guess I'm disqualified for any new job, uh, you know, whenever I put that on a, a, any sort of resume, so I don't do it anymore. Uh, and I, I can see your point, but it's very interesting that uh, even though it's legal here in New Jer- Jersey, it's illegal, um, marijuana. But you have a very good point there. Uh, let, let me ask you, how do you do your vetting? So you mean uh, how do we do the actual background how do you check vet a for candidate? our? Yes. Yeah. So yes. that that in itself is very um, customized. So every employer comes in and says, we have a discussion with them and we figure out what are the things that are important to them. Uh, somebody who is going to dig a ditch is probably going to have a much smaller background check than someone who's going to watch your children or uh, be a firefighter or. Yeah, you know, there's, so there's a very, very degree of how how big that background check is, how many things you check, and then there's other factors too. What are you allowed to check? Uh, what's the budget of the company, and how much do they really care? So, we, we kind of put companies in two buckets. They're, they're doing it because they have to, and they just want to have that rubber stamp, and they, they tend to do the the least amount possible. And then we have other companies, they really care. They want to know everything they can about the applicant, good and bad and otherwise. They, they can make the best decision, uh, you know, moving forward for their company. The, the average background check has at least these items in it. They have a Social Security verification, which gives us an idea of where the person has lived, gives us a little bit of clarity if this is really the right person, uh, and then some sort of a criminal search. Um, that's the minimum, but there are many other factors to a background check: a DMV report, um, employment verification, education verification. Uh, are they on the registered sex offender list? So, there's lots of different areas that we can look to to get a better picture about the, these applicants. 
Where seven one four? Where are you located? We are in uh, our headquarters is in Brea, California, which is in Orange County, uh, in California. But we uh, actually provide our services uh, uh, globally. Uh, we do you know good 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 amount of our work uh, all throughout the United States and have clients uh, from coast to coast. But yeah, our, our headquarters are in Brea. My but my staff is virtual, so we have people all around the country that uh, work for me uh, from home. We we actually moved our company from brick and mortar to a virtual environment uh, back in 2009. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, I think that's a trend. Do you think 30 years from now, majority will be virtual businesses? You know, it depends on how some of the how you know we're going to look at these cases that are happening right now with Uber and some of these other types of, of workforces. So. If we have, if the workforce changes to a contract-based workforce, which is very possible, then I think you're going to see a higher amount of virtual uh, environments and, and people having virtual employees because um, you can save so much money by not having to have people in buildings and all the infrastructure. Um, there's a, a lot of people that can't get their heads around managing a virtual staff. I actually find it easier. Um, than a traditional brick-and-mortar staff, but um, some people, you know, so I think as generations begin to, one generation is going out and more coming in, there may be a shift there in that idea. Um, And and, and there's some other, you know, sort of uh, tangents there that are important. Will our country continue to to move towards a service-based economy? Will we, will almost all of the jobs be service-based or, Will there ever be a resurgence in manufacturing and in other types of jobs, which, you know, clearly cannot be virtual? Um, there's some hints that we may have a return to, to manufacturing as, you know, China begins to, to, to change. They're having a lot of economic problems. And so if some of those things change, will that, any of those jobs come home? And so in 30 years, I think there's definitely going to be a lot more virtual Will that be the dominant? I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I got on that limb quite yet. You're a very articulate uh, CEO, and I'm, I'm enjoying talking to you. And we're arranging for um, your website. Yeah, my website is peopleg2.com. So, if anyone's interested in uh, any of those types of background check services, we also have a great blog that they can follow. We have a lot of information we push out there that's just you know for HR folks, CEOs, um, it's got nothing to do with our services, just about great information they might need to know in case they want to check that out. And, of course, they can follow us on Twitter at, at PeopleG2. Well, well, people, it's people, the capital G, and the number 2.com. Am I correct? That is correct. Um, I'd like to because sometimes in radio, sometimes people don't hear it. Uh, Chris, really thank you for joining us today. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. In fact, all three people uh, today have been one of the more interesting programs we've had. And we're thankful that you were able to close it up and end it. Thank you. All right, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're definitely going to come on again. Chris, uh, in the new year. All right, we'll talk about uh, virtual staffs or uh, company culture. We got all kinds of things we can talk about. You got it.
Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.